Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 3 John. And as you're turning there, let me say this has been a fun study. And I, I like the way that this sort of tops off the three books because the passages tonight are just full, chock full of great, great truths from our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for allowing us to be here. Lord, we know that the place doesn't matter as long as you're there and we've come to enjoy the fellowship of the saints and particularly for us based upon our experience, the fellowship of this body. We're very grateful that you've allowed us to do that. Lord, thank you for worship, for musicians, for the gifted, talented way that you so carefully draw us along by your spirit in a time of worship. People who would blaspheme, now you've made worshipers. We're grateful for that. And Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you did in history But it continues on today, every day, every moment, bearing with your people, drawing us along and allowing us to live lives, Lord, that we could barely imagine, even at our best moments. So all of that said, Lord, we love you and we're grateful to be here. Fill us with your spirit. We look expectantly to you through your word in Jesus name. Amen. Well, let's start with verse 1. It sounds like a good place to start. The elder, we've come to know who that is. That would be John, the elder. To the beloved Gaius, I keep saying Gaius. It's my poor pronunciation and lack of schooling as a kid. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. And as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Every one of us has a reputation. You say, wait a minute. Have there been people talking about me, pastor? Well, actually there have been, but I'll never tell. I'm sworn to secrecy. But I'm joking. Relax. We all have a reputation. That reputation should hopefully reflect what is in our character. Now, I've titled the message tonight, Character in Conflict. Notice it's not characters, but character that is in conflict when motives collide. And there are three prominent characters and their character that rise to the surface in this letter that John is writing to this fellowship. You have Gaius, who is beloved. He's somebody who we are told that is prospering in the faith. And then over in verse 9, we come in contact with a very prideful and selfish saint by the name of Diotrephes. And then finally in verse 12 through 14, as we wrap up the study tonight, we are introduced to a fellow by the name of Demetrius. And he is someone who has the preferred testimony of the saints. 
When I mention the name Bill Richardson, you think governor, right? When I say Steve Stucker, you think weather. When I say weather, you think rain, right? When I say Blake's Burger, you think New Mexico, right? Uh, How about when I say Hatch, what do you think of? Green chili, right? Especially on the Blake's Green Chili Burger. Now, when I say Osama bin Laden, you think, ooh, terrorist, infamous. Well, the other night at dinner, my daughter and I, we were speaking. She's uh, now gone from being a junior high student all the way into entering into high school now. And I won't mention the name of her school because, you know, I don't really want to promote one over the other. However, it rhymes with um, Bell Corrado. Anyway... (laughs) She, she's a volleyball player, but she comes home and she tells me about all the unique people that she meets at school. And for the most part, she loves it. It's a good experience. But she said, you know, dad, the, the most unique, cause I asked her, I said, who's the most unique person you've met so far? And she said, well, there's a guy in our, our school in my class who has a grill. Now, those of you now all of you guys know what I'm talking about. But everybody else, I'll explain for those of you who are challenged in this area. (laughs) A grill is not something that you flip steaks on. A grill is not something that's on the front of a car. A grill is a mouthful of shiny gold or silver that's right in the front. And it's not for dental reasons. It's because you want people to see you bling when you smile. Everyone is known for something. In fact, when I say the name Babe Ruth, you don't, some of you may think of Candy Bar, but I think of the baseball player. And there's a, a great story about him and his uh, status. You know, he hit over uh, 714 home runs, but later in his career, his body began to break down, and he wasn't what he once was. And one particular game with the Boston Braves and the Cincinnati Reds, he just could not do anything right. It was uh, foul play after foul play, and he kept making mistakes, and they kept making runs. And finally, the crowd got so discouraged and upset with him, they began to boo and cheer and jeer this hero. Boo! Get off the field! And so finally in disgust, he starts walking off the field. And one little boy over near where the dugout was saw him and began to burst into tears and couldn't hold himself back. So he just jumped over the side and ran to his hero and just hugged him on his leg. And it was in the midst of all of these cheers and and just against his hero. Well, he looked down, grabbed the little boy, picked him up smiled at him, picked him up in the air and dropped him down and pat him on the head and then sat down next to him right there on the field and began to talk to him. At that point, everybody in the field changed. All the boos turned to unique gazes that would say, I like this guy. He went from that moment from being someone who was known for their prowess in baseball to someone who had become a hero because his heart was revealed, a character they had not seen. All right. Gaius, or Gaius, 
is someone we are told in this passage is beloved. He holds a great reputation in the church. In fact, it is mentioned in this short letter uh, four times that he is beloved. But notice the passage here in verse 1. He says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, Gaius, oh, I'm going to do that the whole night until we get through this particular passage, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. This passage has been used by many people to proclaim what we call a prosperity doctrine. That basically says that, you know, if you follow after the Lord, you're a believer, you're born again, and therefore you must be prospering even as your soul prospers, and they mean in a very narrow sense, a very narrow interpretation, that this means primarily financial prosperity. But the Christian life is so multi-layered, it's so vast, it goes beyond just the checks and balances of our checkbook, the debits and the credits. It goes far beyond that, and he mentions it specifically here, your soul. That is the primary place where the Christian really begins to prosper. Why? Here's, here's a simple, simple way to understand this. In, if you are born and raised in a place where you have financial wealth available to you or to a country where it's able, you're able to gain that, then that doctrine works for you in that country. But what if you're born into a country that is very poverty-stricken and there's no chance for wealth at all? How do you become prosperous and wealthy in that place? You see, it cuts to the core of the heart of the individual that we recognize that it is the inner man, not necessarily the person on the outside that everyone sees, but is first in that inner person that the prospering begins to develop as now their soul is at peace with God, relating to Him in a way maybe that you'd never had before. It all starts at the source and the core of the human being. Now, the word we probably should define here, the word prosperous, it's unique. It's yuadu'al. And it's the combination of two words in Greek, you, which is good, and hados. And literally it means good road. You might say that he is prospering in his soul or his spirit. He is on the right track, we might say, or he has chosen the right direction. This reminds me of the words of Jesus when he said, narrow is the way to salvation, right? Narrow is the way to salvation, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. He describes for us a pathway or a road or a track. I don't know about you, but I like to go hiking sometimes, and I especially like the wilderness. And so I'll take off every once in a while, go up to Elena Gallegos, or we uh, go up to Taos or Red River, visit some of the places around New Mexico. And it's always great to take off on a little trail. However, if you've ever watched the news here in Albuquerque, especially this area over here near the Sandias, people have a tendency to get lost, don't they? People get lost for days and become dehydrated and we have search crews looking for them. Why? Well, probably they started off on something that looked fairly familiar and good. But in the end, 
Obviously, it wasn't the right road. We'd missed the, the mark. It wasn't the right way to go. The Christian, the believer, Gaius, us, who is prospering in his way, is the person who has set out on the right road, following the right predetermined best path by the living God. Notice, we'll look through a few of the priorities of the prospering saint. First priority we see in verse 1 is loving. He says, Beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now you're thinking, okay, Dave, don't tell us the Greek word for love again. We've heard it plenty of times through this. But one thing you have to notice about love and being reminded of it. We may read it a lot. We may hear that we need to do it a lot, but we can never hear it too much. It is, it is the clarion call in my home. There are many disputes and discussions among the residents of my place where we live. Between mom and dad and the kids, mom and dad themselves, the kids and themselves. And sometimes it, it just doesn't seem that it's actually going to be resolved. And someone has to call time out and say, all right, that's enough. Stop it. No more arguing. Hug each other. Pray for each other. Now go to bed. Love each other. We can never be reminded enough of that. Okay, priorities of the prospering saint who's on the right way. First of all is love, but then second of all, it's praying. Look with me at verse 2. He said, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Praying, very simply, we know is seeking God's will, but in praying for others, it is seeking God's grace for the other's good. Seeking God's grace for someone else's good. Now, this is what he prays for. He prays, number one, that he will prosper or be in the right way or be following Lord in the right manner. In first of all, in all things. And all things means all things. It is very good, and a statement needs to be made here. It's good for Christians to do well and prosper in whatever they do. I can't think of people that I would more want to bless, encourage, and allow to prosper in this world. Why? Because you and I have been set on the right path, the narrow path. We have the path lighted by the Word of God, and we're following the living God, listening to Him. And that kind of person who is hard after the things of God... I would pray for that person to be blessed in almost everything that they do. Why? Because they bless the world and they bless the church and they glorify God in the process. It should be a mindset that we care for the whole person. Not just praying for the things that are hurting in their life, but pray for the good things that you see in your brothers and your sisters and get excited about it and and really begin to seek after the Lord for His grace for them so that they prosper in their way and Our mission, our goal is advanced as we do so. You see the pastoral heart in John. He loves, just like Jesus, the whole person. He not only prays for their talents and their gifts and what they bring to the table, but he prays for good health. He says, I pray that you prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. We are not promised... Perfect health. How do I know that? Scripture really never proclaims that. 
You have to twist here and there to get it to say that. You have to take verses out of context. But praying for another's good, praying for another's health, is right in line with the ministry and the ideology and the love of the body of Christ. I know some of you here have been prayed for and God has healed you immediately. Some of us here have seen loved ones go on into eternity and not be healed in this life, but be healed permanently as they're ushered into the presence of the living God. And we stand there puzzled and we scratch our heads. Why? Because we do not have the complete eternal perspective of God. But yet as we pray, we continue to pray that the whole person in health, And whatever they lay their hands to for the kingdom of God, that they would prosper in this world. It's very practical. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just kind of keep your finger here. Flip with me back over to the left. Look with me at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. I know that you were Gentiles, carried around by dumb idols... However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one saying that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Skip down to verse 11. But... One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. That is the purpose of God. So, as one of the members in the body prospers, we're prospering too. We're connected to everyone in the body of Christ, and so it's important that everyone is functioning properly. It's an, it's an issue of maintenance. Okay, so... One of the priorities is loving. The other priority is praying. But the third priority, as we see in verse 3 and 4, is rejoicing at another's success. Look with me at verse 3, back in 3 John. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. He's saying that you have a proven testimony in the world that right now you guys are doing what you're called to do. You are prospering in your way. I'm not writing to say, well, you know, I'm kind of disappointed to hear you're not doing what you're supposed to. But actually, I'm excited because you guys are actually doing what God called you to do. The real test of a person's heart is when someone around us prospers. Someone around us may get that bigger house. Someone may get that job promotion that we had been working for for years. Some, a colleague or a friend or a family member, someone around you may be praised publicly and you're forgotten. When that happens in the body of Christ... That becomes the real test and character of what's going on with us. Do we at that point say, well, here we go again, Lord. 
I must have missed my calling. I, I, I'm just going to pray for misery because that seems to be the only thing that I'm good at. That's the test of your heart. Are you the kind of person that rejoices when he sees, wow, look at how God is blessing you in this way. And I know that I kind of want to be blessed in that way. But when I see it on you, I get excited because I realize, wow, I'm connected to you and I've been praying for you. And I see that, that, oh, look at what God is doing, all the tremendous things in your life. That should be the immediate response of the believer who is proud and happy to see his brother prospering in his way. I'm going to take a little deviation here because I have to bring, bring out a humiliating moment. And then we'll get back to the text. Notice this little passage in verse 4. It says, I have no greater joy to hear than my children walk in the truth. That seems like a great passage for baby dedications, doesn't it? And I don't know why more baby dedications, they don't use this passage. Well, our last child, Hudson, now five years old, in his second week of kindergarten, we had moved to Albuquerque when we had Hudson. And so uh, Carly got him a nice little outfit, and she brought him up here, and Skip was here to dedicate. And uh, so it was my turn to walk up to the microphone and say something profound in a very uh, fatherly, dedicating your child way. And I said, just as the Apostle Paul said, I have no greater love than to see that my children walk in the truth. And I thought... That was profound. I'd never seen anybody else do that. But as we were leaving and going behind the stage, Skip goes, Hey, hey, Dave, um, I think that was John. <laughs> and the immediate response was, No. I'm a pastor. Turn time backwards. It's on videotape forever. (laughs) I never play that video at home. (laughs) Baby dedications are overrated, really. (laughs) Okay, that's humiliating moment. Let's get back to the text. I mean, how often do I get to share that? All right. Here's a little paradigm that I read in a a book the past couple of weeks. I think it's very simple. But I I think there's a level of... It's profound in what it relays to us about God's plan for us and watching God bless others. It goes simply like this. In one section you have the title or the heading God. And just underneath that you have opportunity and sovereignty. And here's the point. God is the one who is sovereign. That means he's all powerful. He creates everything. He's done everything. So in that, he is the one who initially gives you and I our opportunities in life. The place that we were born, the type of people we were born into, the language that we will speak, all of that. God is sovereign in that. None of us had any ability and choice in that. God's sovereign in that. He, he's the one who allows you to be exposed to certain opportunities in life. All right. God, opportunity, sovereignty. Move over just a little bit and you have me or us. And underneath that heading you have obedience and my responsibility. We respond and we have a responsibility to 
be obedient to the opportunities and to the areas that God brings to us. You know, it's like the old dog bowl. You see the dog, you, you put out a, a bowl right here. It has Fido's food in it. And then right next to Fido's food, you put Spot's food and you let the two dogs go. Well, you normally have to feed them in different places because if you feed them right next to each other, immediately they start looking over at the other's bowl and a fight ensues because Spot thinks that there's better food in Fido's bowl and they start to fight. If we are not careful, we can become Spot and Fido in our relationship with each other. You look over at the other person and you say, well, why wasn't I given that opportunity? Well, I would, I would like to, boy, I'd like to be raised in that home or that family, or I would like to have that education, or I would like to have the, oh, the list goes on and on and on. But what we have to submit to is God is the one who placed us in the particular place we're in. And it's a good place. But God is the one who is continually bringing to us opportunities that call for us to obey him at that moment and blessing ensues in our life. We prosper. You say, well, what about the people who are martyred? Hey, look, if God is the one who had given this person life in Jesus and he's the one who brought them along and said, here's your moment to testify before an angry crowd. I will be there with you and I will bring you into heaven with me. Then that person right there who is martyred and killed for their faith, they're prospering in their way. It's God's sovereignty. It's his opportunity, but it's our obedience and our responsibility. Okay. So we move over from God to us to me over to finally to God once again. And underneath that you have outcome and God's sovereignty. We have responsibility. He brings us opportunity. But in the end, we can fall back into his gracious, loving arms and say, Lord, I've been obedient as much as I can, and I leave all of the outcome for my life, all of the uh, areas that you bring into my life, all the opportunities, I leave all of that in your care, knowing that you are sovereign. Have you ever gone through a rough time? And during that rough time, you can think of everything that you are doing wrong, everything that your family members are doing wrong, the people around you, you might even have enemies who are trashing you. And it's easy to just focus on every one of the individuals and all the problems that, that you can see. But when you sort of come out of that valley and, and the, the dawn begins to break and you're, you feel the warmth of this, the sunlight of, of a new day, you, you sort of sit back and go, wow. Your perspective has changed. You look around at yourself and you say, I've been changed. In fact, my perspective eternally is changed. I have a different outlook on life. And I think it's better than it was before. And then you look around at those around you. And there are varying degrees of of blessing and prospering depending upon obedience to the Lord. But you can come through those circumstances saying, Oh, I wonder if this was all God's plan in the first place. You ever have that feeling? It happens to me almost every day. It's like you go through that day. What happened today here, Lord? Then you wake up the next day and go, well, actually, that was pretty good. It's beneficial. All right. 
not only are our priorities loving, praying, and rejoicing, but look at verse 5. It's giving, giving to others. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Giving to others. It is a priority of those prospering saints in Lord's kingdom. Giving how? By doing. We notice the little phrase here, do and what you do for the brethren and for strangers. Giving is seen in action. It may be in a loving act of kindness. It may be financial help to someone. There are various ways to give, but it never really entails philosophy. It always must reach the feet so that the shoe leather matches what is being spoken. It's always real. It's in real time. It's in the doing. And it should be done how? We are told in verse 5, it should be done faithfully. It should be a natural part of our lives. It should be done as a, as a duty that we carefully watch over very faithfully. And who should it be done for? For the brethren, for the church, for those around us. But also, it says, for strangers. You know, sometimes it's easy to do things for people in the body of Christ because you say, well, this is a pretty good investment. I know this guy. I know this gal. And this is a good thing to do for them because they're in the family. But a part of our ministry in evangelism and raising up uh, awareness of God's goodness in the world is doing good not only for the brethren, but also for strangers, maybe strangers in the body of Christ that we've never met before, who are not technically strangers, they are family, but strangers in the world, doing good just as our master has given us example. All right, we give by doing, but look in verse 6, we give by sending or blessing those who are traveling. That day is not unlike it is today, speaking of the first century, there were a group, many itinerant ministers who would go from various house church to house church to different villages and townships, various provinces throughout the world and share the gospel and preach and encourage other believers. And so you'd have a guy who'd show up in town and he'd find out where the fellowship is and he would go to that place and say, hey, well, I'm uh, from a town about 10, 15 miles away. And I bring you greetings from the other brothers in town and just want to bless you. Well, because of that, you had a lot of people moving in and out of fellowship, not knowing exactly who was who. Not unlike those today who we have traveling musicians and pastors and evangelists who come through town and visit our fellowship. And we typically bring them in and embrace them as brothers and sisters, and send them on their way. Now, when he was speaking about sending them and sending them on their way, there was a particular practice that was used. Because they didn't have the car and high gas prices, they had legs and feet 
and sandals, and they would walk from place to place. Maybe from time to time you could afford maybe a donkey or if you knew someone, but typically you would pack all of your things on the donkey. When someone would come to your fellowship or to your group of believers, you would fellowship with them, but as they were leaving, you would walk them to the edge of the town and maybe even walk an extra mile and send them on their way with goodwill and fellowship saying, hey, it was good to see you and good to be with you. We do this with missionaries who leave out of our church. We do it with with those who come through. And this is why it's important. It's easy for us to get focused in our little world, our group of people, our mission. But these brothers and sisters who come to us from various places constantly remind us that God is doing a work all over the world. And we somehow bear relationship and fellowship to that. Which brings us to the next point in giving. Not only is giving doing, it's sending and blessing, but in verse 7, it requires discernment. He says, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Simple principle. Believers support the ministry of believers. We do not go to an unbelieving world. But there's also a sense of discernment that... John recognizes that they went forth, these who, those who come through, went forth from their place of origin for his, capital letter H, for Jesus' namesake. There is a level of discernment that says, wow, these guys, this gal, this group of people, this person is completely legitimate because I can see the marks of Jesus and his ministry and their purpose for ministering all over their activity. And so there's a level of discernment that should be there to say, are you guys for real? But if they are, oh, bless them and send them on their way. And then in verse 8, giving involves investment. He says, therefore, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. We have an investment that we can be a part of. We can't always go to all the various parts of the world. I mean, we have missionaries and uh, country after country after country. We have churches started all over the U.S. And I can't personally go to all these places and minister. But as I pray for, as I love, as I give uh, financially, as I give my support, as I give my heart and my life for brothers and sisters on the field, I become an investor and I partake and have a part in what they are doing in the truth. And I think a good investment is always something we want to look into. No one wants to make a bad investment, but if you can have an investment that would say last for, I don't know, eternity, that would probably be the best one of all, investing in people's lives and the work of the ministry. All right, we see the priority of prospering saints, but look with me in verse 9. We see the pride of selfish saints. We move from Gaius to Diotrephes. He says in verse 9, 
I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deed, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, but he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does what is good is of God, but he who does what is evil has not seen God. Diotrephus is a guy who just embodies selfishness. Selfishness and pride. It's interesting, his name means Zeus nourished. And it's, it's telling that they use his old Greek name, his old pagan name in this passage. It was a common practice in the early church that if you came from a pagan background, many of you would be uh, named something like, you know, Zeus lover or, you know, Diana, friend of Diana or whatever the name may be. It would be connected to uh, the Greek Roman pantheon of false deity. Well, when you become a believer, oftentimes, as you were being baptized, you would take on a completely new name. And a whole new identity that was not connected to that old way of life and that old pagan worship. It's interesting that his name is still being mentioned here as Zeus Nourished. Well, he has a few problems. And here's the profile of a prideful, selfish saint. First of all, in verse 9, we are told that he loves to be first. He says, I wrote to the church, but... Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. The person who says, I've got to be first, it's got to be me, is the person who says, basically, I don't want to say it in front of everybody, but really, it's all about me. It's all about me. And, you know, the idea is, here's my big chance. Everything is an opportunity for them to advance personally. You know, they would kind of have this phrase, uh, we can do anything you desire as long as it's something I want to do. Right? You kind of got that on and it kind of passed over your head. Anyway, he's the kind of person that will immediately take the highest seat. Now, If God gives you the opportunity and you walk through that door and out of obedience, God in his sovereignty raises you to a level of prominence in any place, be it the church or in the world somewhere, that's God's business. Let the world and and all of your critics sort that out. But if you are in the place of constantly pushing yourself in, you're falling into the camp of diatrophies, being selfish and prideful. All right. He loves to be first, but... Notice this, he also rejects authority. Look at this phrase. John says here, he does not receive us. The us in this is telling. The us is John the elder who represents those who had been close with Jesus. You're probably not going to get a higher authority living on earth than an actual apostle who had grown up under the feet of Jesus Christ. Being John, the us being those who are with him, those who are leaders and elders established in the church. It says he does not receive us. Therefore, in his selfish, prideful way, he rejects authority. Why? This is why. 
because it conflicts with his own kingdom and power. For some reason, he had carved out for himself a little position of power and prominence in the church. And so anytime that there's an opening, he's constantly trying to push himself in there. And as he does so, everyone else around becomes a threat. Everyone else is a threat because now it is about his kingdom and not the Lord's kingdom. It's about him personally and not the family corporately. It's a telltale sign that you become selfish and prideful. Notice verse 10. It gets worse. It moves from loving to be first, being self-centered, rejecting authority, to even worse, slander. He says... Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content with that. Prating here, the word that is used here, means to bubble up or to boil over. And the word that is used here for malicious is typically used of evil. It is paneros, meaning very malignant, very aggressive in its processes. So he's bubbling forth effusive, malicious gossip and slander against John, against Gaius, and against anybody who would oppose his authority. Then he becomes suspicious. Look, continue on in this passage. He says, prating against us and not content with that in verse 10. But he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to. He's gone so far as to, I want to be first. I reject authority. I slander those. And then I become suspicious of everyone. Do you start to see the picture of this guy? His world is narrowing, 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 narrowing. The world says, get ahead, take the opportunity, be first, lead the pack. Hey, it doesn't matter if a few people get stepped on on the way to the top of the ladder. They'll learn from the bad experience. But you notice the world's formula always ends in destruction and alienation from God and alienation from everybody else. If you look around yourself and you realize that you have a level of success, but no friends, no loved ones, nobody that trusts you, you may have gotten there by the wrong means. It has no place, zero place in the church. And then finally, in verse 10, he's not content with all of these things, but finally takes action against the brethren for his own selfish end says, putting them out of the church. You must believe. If you believe, you must act. Conviction always precedes action. A person rarely comes to a very aggressive act without first purposely going there. Now, why did John mention this guy publicly? The reason he's mentioned publicly is because he's out of control. (laughs) He's someone who has gone completely out of control and starting to hurt everyone around. And so as a loving shepherd, there may be times when 
someone here on the staff or someone maybe in your prayer group has to say, look, we've got somebody who is just absolutely out of control. They're running rampant and they will not repent and they're constantly hurting people. They're running over everybody. They're not reflecting the character of Christ. We've confronted them and confronted them. Now it's time to let everybody know because they're so obstinate. Most of this can be taken care of in Matthew 18, where you go to your brother privately, you take another with you, and then if he doesn't hear you, well, then what happens? There has to be public exposure. Why? Because this type of activity ruins the church. And if you say, well, you know, Dave, I don't want to admit this publicly, but this kind of represents me a little bit. Hey, there's a good way out of this. You can turn right now from where you are and say, man, I haven't been as loving. I don't see my ministries and the things that I'm doing prospering in the way. And maybe it's because I've been completely involved in self-promotion. And my attitude is a lot like this guy, even though I don't want to admit it. Listen, whether you like it or not, promotion comes from God himself. Promotion comes from God himself. And so it's not really appropriate for you and I to continually proceed to try to promote ourselves. Why? It damages those around us and eventually damages the character and nature of the church. But it never takes us where we want to go. Never in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, it's more of a saying, Lord, help me to be faithful with the opportunities that you've provided today. Help me to be obedient, and then I trust the results to you and to your sovereignty. Now, here's a little funny note. If indeed Diotrephes is a believer, which most cases would say that he is, can you imagine being in heaven for the last 2,000 years going, Man, John, I can't believe... I mean, if I would have known that that was going to be in the Bible and people were going to read that forever, you know? Wow. I mean, I never thought it would turn into something this big. (laughs) You never know where that kind of rebellion against God will go. Beware. All right. Finally, the last point, we see Demetrius in verse 12 as the preferred testimony of the saints. He says, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. First Timothy, if you'd like to turn there, look with me in First Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse one. He gives us the importance of a good testimony among those who serve in the fellowship. He said, it is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 
not a novice, lest he be puffed up with pride and he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Key verse, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So there must be qualifications and a good testimony from all the church, the believers who know this person, but also from without within the community itself. And you say, well, man, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty big order. But that's the order that he calls us to. Demetrius is that kind of guy who has the testimony that we want to have in the world, not that of Diotrephes. All right. In verse 12, we are also told that he is, has a good testimony from the truth as well. Not only of all, but the truth itself. Now, what does that mean? Typically, as we mentioned before, the truth encompasses all that we know and believe concerning Jesus Christ and his word and his book. So the personality, the character should match and did match in Demetrius's case with the word of God, which should give us hope. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a book, a companion that we can carry with us everywhere we go and constantly refer to the pages of the message of God and look at our life, compare and make adjustments. Reassess, compare and make adjustments. And as we do so, our life is even being judged or a testimony given to us by the truth because we are constantly in the process of examining ourselves by the truth. He also says that he has a good or preferred testimony from the elders. Notice the phrase, we. The we here is John and company. And this is what he's saying. He says he has a good testimony from all, from the truth itself. And we also, John and the elders, bear witness. And the final point is that the elders witness is true. The elders bring to our lives guidance, affirmation, confirmation, completely credibility. If you think that you're on the right track, but yet there are elder stately believers who've gone before you who are saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, back up. You're not there yet. You're blowing it. And there's not just one, but there's a few who love you are saying, you need to back up here a little bit. Maybe that's the time where you say, ooh, I need, I need to listen to those who have influence, those who are tried and true in the church so that I continue on the right track. All right. He leaves us with a, in verse 12 with a final little statement about the elders. He says the testimony of the elder is proven. A couple of weeks ago, I was on vacation and standing in the A line at Southwest, very proud to get that A boarding pass. I was standing there early with a few bags, holding a place for the kids. And I looked over because it's kind of boring standing in line. But I looked over and I saw a news rack and on it was this article. And I said, ooh, Billy Graham on Newsweek. I bet that's cool. 
it was a great article on him and it really talked about his whole life and, and the processes of his life and how God has grown him from a young fiery evangelist into the, the, the twilight years of approaching heaven itself. And I thought, I, I marked a few words here that I thought would be very telling for us. He says, all my life I've been taught how to die, but no one ever taught me how to grow old. Graham remarked one day to his daughter and Graham Lotz. She said, and I told him, well, Daddy, you're now teaching all of us. The lesson of age, Anne says, is this. When you get older, secondary things like politics begin to fade away, and the primary things become primary again. And for Daddy, the primary thing is, as Jesus says, try to love God totally and love your neighbor as yourself. Later on, it goes on to quote him as saying, The older I get, the more important the eternal becomes to me personally. It says, His mind is on heavenly more than the temporal, on the central promises of Christianity, more than on the passing political parade. There are elders among us who've lived through problems. They've grown through tough times. And yet they're coming out the other side with a voice to us like John the elder, like someone like Billy Graham, like the the brothers and sisters, the elders here in our fellowship by saying, these are the things that are true. And we have their lives to look at, though not perfect, marked with a sense of failure at times. But the overarching theme is God's grace and His glory and His testimony in them. And a testimony of an elder that's proven is a testimony that is worthy of our acceptance. I'll end with this story. There was a story of a master violinist in Europe. And he was known for owning a Stradivarius, a very famous, well-made, probably the most famous uh, violin maker ever. Well, people would come to hear him play, and he would play in local halls, and as he would play, everyone would say, oh, listen to the sound of the Stradivarius. He would play in churches, and people would say, oh, listen to the sound of the Stradivarius. He would play in great concert halls in front of kings and royalty. And they would lean over to each other and say, listen to the sound of the great Stradivarius. Well, one day, he kind of got tired of it. So in passing by, he saw a pawn shop and walked in and saw an old beat-up violin. It seemed to be old and worn, and he paid what we would be equivalent in American dollars, about five bucks. And he took it with him. He took it to his house and he worked on it and he patched it up and he uh, lacquered it and then he tuned it and he retuned it and he worked on it again and he tuned it again until finally he was scheduled to play really the, the, the peak of all of the performances that he had been scheduled to play in his whole life. It was the greatest one ever. And he chose the five dollar pawn shop violin. He took it to the concert hall and played it masterfully. And as he did so, everyone leaned over to each other and said, listen to the beautiful sound of the Stradivarius. It's easy for us to focus on the instrument. But really, 
It's the one that plays the instrument. It's God who takes a bunch of $5 violins like us, tunes us up, tunes our character, braces up the the weak places, tunes our character, tunes our character. And in the end, when he plays us, people go, oh, listen to the Stradivarius. God gets all the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for beautiful words. Though there may be conflict in our character, even internally, we know, Lord, that your motivation, your will will win out in the end. So we trust you. We lean upon you, your goodness. Lord, if us tonight, individually but collectively, we're struggling with sin, maybe we've been convicted in our hearts. God, do that work that you do so well in us by your Holy Spirit. Convict us, free us, allow us, Lord, to ask for forgiveness. Lead us along by your Spirit. Brace up those areas. And Lord, we want to play in unison by your hand with your people for your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.